You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. I have a question for you. Have you found yourself, as we've been going through the book of Acts, appreciating the Apostle Paul more and more, even more than you did before we started the book of Acts? Uh, Some of you have mentioned in recent weeks how the time that we've been spending in the book of Acts has been a blessing to you because even though you knew about Paul and some events in his life, it has kind of helped put things into perspective and has really given you a, a deeper, more profound appreciation for his work, his ministry, his heart, his passion, And see, even before we started the book of Acts, if you had asked me who your favorite Bible character is, who do you think I would have said? I would have said Paul. But my appreciation for Paul was based upon what he wrote, really. I was familiar with the book of Acts, but reading Romans and 1st and 2nd Thessalonians and Corinthians, Ephesians, Colossians, and these masterpieces of theology and wisdom and practical Christian living and high Christology, reading those books gave me an appreciation for the mind of the Apostle Paul and his passion and his heart and his wisdom. But reading and studying the book of Acts has opened up a whole new level of appreciation for the Apostle Paul. And it is because now I get to see that heart and that mind and that passion of the Apostle Paul, not just in writing, not just from what he says, but I get to see it lived out in day-to-day life. Friends, you know that it's one thing to say you believe something, and it is quite another to live what you believe, isn't it? It is one thing to say, I believe in the providence and the sovereignty and the grace and the love and the goodness and the wisdom of God, and it is another thing to trust Him when all of the world goes berserk and everything seems to fall apart and you face adversity or suffering or uncertainty or calamity strikes. It's one thing to say, I believe X, Y, and Z. It's another thing to live X, Y, and Z. It's one thing for Paul to say to Timothy, Timothy, join with me in suffering for the gospel according to the power of God. It's another thing to see Paul suffer for the gospel according to the power of God. It's one thing for him to say, for me to live as Christ and to die as gain. But it's another thing to actually watch how somebody who lives Christ lives Christ. In the book of Acts, we get to see what Paul does. In his writings, we see what he says. When Paul writes, he says this. In the book of Acts, we see him live this. And you know what we've seen? That the person who talks the talk has been able to walk the walk. You notice that? Have you noticed that the Paul of his writings is the same Paul of the book of Acts? There's no lack of integrity. There's no lack of oneness. What he talks in his epistles, he walks in the book of Acts. And we never at any time see, well, he says this over here, but here we see him contradicting it with his lifestyle. There's integrity with Paul. There is a oneness of his talk and his walk that has to make us sort of stand in awe and say, man, that's a guy I can respect. That's a guy who lived Christ. And friends, that consistency is present really with anybody who has suffered the loss of all things for the sake of knowing Christ. Today, in today's text, Acts chapter 21, beginning at verse 27 through verse 30, 
we get to see the Apostle Paul suffer the loss of one more thing. Do you know what it is? His freedom. You see, friends, this is a turning point in the book of Acts. This is where, uh, from Acts chapter 21, verse 27, on to the end of the book of Acts, the Apostle Paul will be a prisoner. He will not know freedom for the rest of the book. So everything that happens and everything that, that Paul does, everything that he says, he says now as a prisoner. His freedom has been taken away from him. No longer will the Apostle Paul be able to preach Christ wherever he wants. He will just be able to preach Christ wherever he is. And he will not determine who his audience is. He won't be able to say, today I feel like preaching Christ in the synagogue. Tomorrow I feel like preaching Christ in the marketplace. The next day I'm going to go to the church or into this home. Paul's audience will be be determined by the criminal justice system, by the kings and the rulers who are in authority over him, and by whatever lucky guard happens to be chained to this evangelist. Because you know what Paul's going to do to somebody who's chained to his wrist. Right? Eight hours a day. (laughs) He's going to preach Christ to that guy. So much so that by the time we get to the end of the book of Acts, the Gospel had made its way right into Caesar's household. There were people in Caesar's household who were believers. He refers to himself as a prisoner of Jesus Christ. Ephesians chapter 3, verse 1. See, that's Paul's perspective. Not a prisoner of Rome. Listen, not a prisoner of the Jews. He is a prisoner of whom? Christ. I am an ambassador in chains, Paul said. Free me up and I preach Christ. Put me in chains, I preach Christ. Free, I represent Christ. In chains, I represent Christ. What's different with Paul between being free and being bound? The presence of chains. So Paul will preach Christ not where he wants from this point forward, but Paul will preach Christ wherever he is from this point forward. He doesn't get to determine that anymore. What is it that leads to his arrest? Last week we looked at a passage of Scripture in Acts chapter 21, and you'll need to turn there. In fact, for a brief moment, I want you to turn back to Acts chapter 24. I'm going to review just real quickly what we covered last week. And I want you to know that from for a little while as we're in the book of Acts, I may be jumping back and reviewing a few major things. And and here's why. Acts chapter 24, I want you to look at verse 10. Now keep in mind, we're back in Acts chapter 21. Paul's being seized in the temple. So we go through all of chapter 2, all of chapter 23, half of chapter 4. We get down to verse 10. When the governor had nodded for him to speak, Paul responded, Knowing that for many years you have been a judge to this nation, I cheerfully make my defense, since you can take note of the fact that no more than 12 days ago I also went up to Jerusalem to worship. See anything significant there? Where was Paul at when he went up to Jerusalem to worship? Caesarea. You know where he's at when he makes this statement? Caesarea. How much time has elapsed? Twelve days. Now let's factor in a couple days trip up to Caesarea. Let's factor in the seven days purification in the temple that we're about to see back in chapter 21. Then you've got this defense before the council, a defense before the Jews, a defense before um, the king, a trip to Caesarea, and then another defense. And Paul says, just 12 days ago I left for Jerusalem. So everything between chapter 21 and chapter 24 happens in the span of just a few days. So we're not talking about months. We're not talking about years. We're talking about days. So all of this activity, all of this stuff that you're going to see, the plot on his life, and the nephew spoiling the plot on his life, and all of the defenses before the king's friends, we're talking about stuff that is crammed into days' worth of time, a few hours all just crunched together. And so since all of this unfolds, all of this material, and there's so much happening, every once in a while I'm going to go back and I'm going to give you a review because I want you to keep in mind 
that much of what happens in the last part of the book of Acts happens not over months and years, but over days. In fact, Luke skips two years when he says he was in prison in Caesarea for two years. Just does away with two years worth of time. Because why? All of the good stuff happens in these 12 days. And all of the good stuff happens in the few days after that. So what happened that led Paul to the temple? You remember what happened when he got back to Jerusalem? He went into the elders and he began to relate to them one by one the things that God did him through him in his ministry. And the elders said, that's great. They rejoiced. They praised God. And then at the end of that, they said, Paul, we got a problem. And here's the problem. We have a bunch of believing Jews in the city of Jerusalem who have been told concerning you, they have had it drilled into their heads that you go from city to city among the Gentiles teaching the Jews to forsake Moses, to not circumcise their children, and to abandon our customs. And this was creating a dilemma for them because they had Christian Jews in the city of Jerusalem who had a hostile prejudice toward the Apostle Paul. They had listened to a lie about Paul. And they came up, and that put them in an awkward position because they don't want to, Christians don't want to fraternize with the enemy. That would have been Paul, as far as the Jews were concerned. They needed a way to resolve this, a way to demonstrate to the Jews, believing and unbelieving, that Paul was not hostile to the temple. He was not hostile to Moses or the customs or the law. Here's our idea, they said. We have four men who are fulfilling a Nazarite vow. Take those four men, go into the temple, and begin your purification process, because he was ceremonial unclean, in order that you not defile the temple. Take those four men, you begin your purification process, and then pay all of the expenses for their sacrifices associated with the keeping of that vow. And that would demonstrate to all of the believing Jews and the unbelieving Jews and everybody who saw Paul that he was not hostile to the customs, he was not hostile to the temple, and he was not hostile to Moses. A perfect idea. A brilliant idea. It didn't involve a, a compromise of principle. It didn't involve, involve a compromise of the truth or the gospel. And so Paul was willing, in becoming all things to all men, to accommodate the Jews and do this simple act which would identify him with his Jewish believing brethren and show to all the Jews in Jerusalem from all over the world that he was not hostile to these things, that the things that were said about him were not true. Now, friends, that's a risky plan. You know why it's risky? It is inherently dangerous because up to this point, the fact that Paul has arrived in Jerusalem has been a pretty well-kept secret because one of the things that the elders said to him is they're surely going to find out that you've come. He went in and he met with James and he met with the other elders privately. The other believers weren't there. A few people were privy to the fact that he was in Jerusalem. But James said, they're going to hear that you're here. We have to do something so that a mob doesn't break out. That's why they came up with this, this idea. It doesn't involve a compromise. So Paul, go into the temple and, and do this thing. And he decided to do it. All things to all men. So he did it. But it's inherently risky. Why is it risky? Because to the extent that Paul advertises his Jewishness is the extent to which Paul advertises his presence. In order for all the Jews in Jerusalem to see that Paul was not hostile to the law, all the Jews in Jerusalem would have to see Paul. That's what they're trying to avoid. So the plan is a risky one. Paul agrees to it. He goes into the temple and that's where we pick it up in verse 27. Look at verse 27. Paul had seven days that he had to be in the temple and he had to go in periodically for different ceremonial cleansing things. And he's unclean, unclean ceremonial because he's been so long in Gentile nations and countries. So verse 27, when these seven days were almost over, the Jews from Asia, upon seeing him in the temple, began to stir up the crowd and laid hands on him. The Jews in Asia. It's not the believing Christians. It's not the Jews in Jerusalem. It's the Jews in Asia. Now why is that significant? Where did Paul just spend three years of his life? In Ephesus. And Ephesus is in Asia. 
These are the Jews from likely the city of Ephesus, because verse 29 says they recognized Trophimus, the Ephesian. And Paul had been traveling around Asia, all these different churches, teaching the word privately and from house to house, three years in Ephesus. They knew him. They knew him by sight. And they knew Trophimus by sight. And they were able to pick Paul out. And when they saw Paul in Jerusalem, they said, this is our chance to get this guy. It was the Jews from Asia. Listen, it could have been Jews from anywhere. You know what was going on on the day of Pentecost? Remember, this is Pentecost that they're celebrating. Jews from all over the then known world traveled to Jerusalem for Passover. And most of them would stay that 50 days between Passover and Pentecost. So they would celebrate the Passover. Then they would stay in Jerusalem during that time. Then they would observe Pentecost 50 days or seven weeks later. And remember on the very first, in Acts chapter 2, the day of Pentecost when the church was born, the Spirit was given on that day. Do you remember how Luke talked about all the different people who were present? Acts chapter 2, Parthians, Medes, Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, the districts of Libya, around Serene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabs. What's Luke's point? Like Paul, Jews from all over the Roman Empire came back to Jerusalem to observe those feasts. Now what's interesting is Paul had been in all these places. He had been in Galatia and been stoned by the people in Lystra. He had been in Iconium and been run out of their synagogue and hated there. He had been blasphemed in Pisidian Antioch and rejected in the regions of Galatia. Then he went to Philippi and what happened? The Jews had a heyday there with him rejecting him. And they ran him out of Thessalonica and they ran him out of Berea and they ran him out of Macedonia and Achaia and they ran him out of Corinth. And he got to Ephesus and what happened? Paul said to the Ephesian elders, you know from the first day that I set foot in Asia how I was with you the whole time, how I served the Lord with all humility in trials which came upon me through the plots of the Jews. They opposed him even in Ephesus. All of those Jews from all over those regions where Paul had been, it could have been Jews from anywhere. Listen, you could have stood in the middle of the temple on that day and you could have picked up a stone and closed your eyes and thrown it in any direction and it likely would have bounced off of four people who wanted Paul dead before it ever hit the ground. You didn't have to look far to find somebody who wanted this guy dead. And it was even it, it was even less difficult to find somebody who looked at him with a jaundiced eye because of everything they had heard about him. Paul was standing in the midst of the most hostile crowd that you could possibly envision. And there were people from all over the world who would have been looking at him saying, yeah, we know this guy. As of two years ago, we ran him out of our synagogue. It was two years ago, we hatched a plot to kill him. And so he's in the temple and he's, everything is going well until some Jews from Asia stand up. And they say, men of Israel, come to our aid. Now, if you're a proud, God-loving, self-respecting Jew, that is a call that you cannot ignore. Come to our aid, men of Israel. This is the man who preaches to all men everywhere against our law, against our nation, against this temple, and he has even brought Jews in here, and he has defiled this holy place. Look at those accusations. I want to take them each one one by one, because listen, these four accusations are going to haunt Paul through the rest of this book, because everything that we deal with for the rest of this book is centered on these accusations. These are the four things that they bring up about Paul. First, he preaches against our people. He's an anti, what do you call it? Semite. He's anti-Semitic. The Apostle Paul, anti-Semitic, preaches against our people. Second, he preaches against the law. He tells people, that's what the, the elders told Paul. They have been told concerning you that you teach the Jews among the Gentiles everywhere to forsake Moses. And here they say, this is a man who preaches against our people. 
He preaches against our law. The third accusation, he preaches against this place. That is the temple because they're inside the temple. He preaches against this temple. Fourth, he has defiled this temple by bringing Jew or Greeks into the part where the place where Greeks could not come into the inner part of the temple. Now, friends, <clears throat> you know enough about Paul, and you know enough about his writings, and you know enough about him from what we've seen in the book of Acts. Let me ask you a question: Are any of those true? Any of those things true? Are any of them even remotely close to true? They're not true. Let's take them one by one. First, Paul was anti-Semitic. He preaches against this nation. Was Paul anti-Jewish? He was a Jew. Isn't that what you would want to scream at the top of your lungs? I'm Jewish. How can I be anti-Semitic if I'm a Jew? Born of the tribe of Benjamin. Pharisee of Pharisees. Zealous for the law. I kept it from my whole upbringing. And listen, as you listen to him give his defenses from this point forward in the book of Acts, he's going to say that over and over and over again. He's going to give his Jewish credentials, his Jewish chronology. Why does he do that? Because they accused him of being anti-Semitic. How do you answer the charge that you're not anti-Semitic? By saying, I'm Semitic. I'm a Jew. And his Savior was a Jew. Can you imagine that? And he took the Gospel to who first? The Jew first. And then to the Greek. You could not lay your finger on a single word that the Apostle Paul ever wrote or said and nothing that he ever did which would suggest he was anti-Semitic. Romans chapter 11, he asked the question, Has God cast off His people whom He foreknew? May it never be. Does that sound anti-Semitic? Even in spite of the fact that they had rejected their Messiah, Paul says, has God cast off His people? No. No, they're benefit in every way. Romans chapter 9, listen to this. I am telling the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience testifies with me in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing grief in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed, separated from Christ for the sake of my brethren, my kinsmen according to the flesh, who are Israelites, to whom belongs the adoption as sons, and the glory and the covenants and the giving of the law and the temple service and the promises, whose are the fathers and from whom is the Christ according to the flesh, who is over all blessed God forever. Amen. Does that sound anti-Semitic? I wish that I myself could perish for the sake of my Jewish brethren, the Israelites. That's not anti-Semitic. But to a Jew, listen, to a Jew, if you were to suggest that Jews and Gentiles are welcome on the same footing before the cross, that's anti-Semitic. Why? Because to a Jew, we are up here, Gentiles are dogs. And they can't even be saved unless they become like Jews. You can never become fully Jew, but you have to become like Jews. Well, Paul just simply said, look, there's benefits to being a Jew. God has not cast off his people. There are blessings there. But when it comes to salvation by faith in Christ, all of us are the same. In Christ, there's neither Jew nor Gentile, Jew nor Greek. Well, that's anti-Semitic. Well, it's a twisting of what Paul would mean. It's a twisting of what Paul would say. What about the second charge? He preaches against the law. The Apostle Paul preached against the law. Did he testify to men everywhere against the law of Moses? Did Paul think that the law was unholy or ungood? Ungood, that's a word. Not good. First Timothy chapter 1, verse 8. The law is good if one uses it lawfully. Romans chapter 7, Paul says, what shall we say then? Is the law sin? May it never be. On the contrary, I would not have come to known sin except by the law. 
So then the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Paul says the law is a good thing. It in itself is holy and righteous. But Paul just simply taught what the law could not do. The law is holy, but it can't make you holy. The law is righteous, but it can't make you righteous. The law is good, but it can't make you good. The law cannot justify a sinner or forgive a sinner because by the law no flesh shall be justified in his sight. So the law is powerless to do anything to change our nature or to give us a righteousness before God. All it does is condemn us. It declares us guilty before God so that every mouth is shut up. We can't say anything in the presence of a holy God. Paul didn't preach against the law. The law is good. But you've got to understand why the law was given. It was given as a schoolmaster to lead us to Christ. So when the law does what the law is supposed to do, it's a good thing. Just don't misuse the law. He didn't preach against the law. He just said to Jews and Gentiles, you can't get righteousness by the law. And Jews should not expect Gentiles to live like Jews. Don't pressure non-Jews to live as Jews according to the law. That's all Paul said. And don't think that the law gains you anything in the sight of God. But he didn't preach against the law. Third accusation, he preaches to all men everywhere against this place. Now this is a serious one. To the Jew, the temple was the seat of God. Because they had that temple in the center of Jerusalem, they thought that meant God's blessing, God's presence, God's provision, His protection. That's what they thought the temple represented. And for an individual to speak against the temple was to the Jew the same thing as blasphemy. And you remember that's what they, remember that's what they said about Jesus? Mark chapter 14, it says that some stood up and began to give false testimony against Jesus, saying, we heard him say, I will destroy this temple and in three days build another one not made with hands. Remember that? What were they accusing him of? They were trying to get, trying to nail him with blasphemy, speaking against the temple because it was a serious crime. Did Paul ever speak against the temple? What would you say if you were Paul? I'm in the temple. Where is this happening? Right here where I'm at. I'm not speaking against the temple. I'm participating in the rituals within the temple. But nobody's going to be confused by the facts. The fact that he's in the temple is irrelevant. He speaks against the temple. He never spoke against the temple. Jesus never spoke against the temple. You know what both of them taught? That all of the functions and all the symbolism and all of the elements of the temple were fulfilled in Christ. That's what they taught. Is that speaking against the temple? No. All it does is reveal the temple's true glory. To say that the temple pointed to Christ is to reveal its true glory. Paul said, Paul did teach that God does not dwell in temples made with human hands, didn't he? He did teach that we as a church are the temple of God being built up in the Spirit for a dwelling of God in the Spirit. He did teach that, but he said that's teaching against the temple. Well, that's not what Paul taught. He's in the temple. Now there's a fourth one. This is really serious. He has brought Greeks into this place and he has defiled this holy place. That's a capital crime. That's even more serious than speaking against the temple, which is even more serious than speaking against the law, which is even more serious than speaking against the nation. It's it's almost in an ascending order and they just go from one thing to the worst to worst to the very bottom of the barrel. He has brought Greeks into the temple and he has defiled this place. Now it would help you to understand what the charge is if I described to you what the temple was like. If you visited the temple with Paul that day, you would have walked through the outermost wall of the temple and the temple was set up as co-centric rectangles, one inside of another, so that each rectangle formed a court around another more inner part of the temple. So as you walked through the outermost door, you would have entered what was called the Court of the Gentiles. 
That was where Gentiles could come in. They could participate in the ceremonies. Gentiles were welcome there. And then, and I'm sorry about this, ladies, you would walk through the court of the Gentile into the court of women, where women could come into that court, but they couldn't go beyond that into the court of Israel, where only Israeli men were allowed to go. And between the court of the Gentiles and the court of women, there was a four and a half foot high fence, a barrier, a dividing wall, which separated the Gentiles from the place where the Jews could come. And those, that wall had uh, places, gates, where doors were at and people could go in there, but nobody but a Jew was allowed to go in there because that would defile the temple. And posted along that wall at regular intervals were little signs that warned Gentiles as to the consequences of what would happen if they were to go into the temple, into the court where only Jews were allowed to go. Josephus describes those signs to us. In 1935, archaeologists found one of those signs, and here's what it read. No Gentile, listen to this, no Gentile shall enter within the partition and barrier surrounding the temple, and whoever is caught shall be responsible to himself for his subsequent death. That was what the sign read. Posted all the way. You could not say that you were not warned. Because all along this wall there were these things. If you're a Gentile and you go past here, we're going to kill you. You say, did Jews do that? By the way, that's a real interesting welcome sign, isn't it? Welcome to our temple. Welcome to our religious services. Let us be a light for the God of Israel. If you go back past here, we'll kill you. That was their welcome sign. Now, if you were, you say, could the Jews really kill a Gentile who came inside there? Yeah, they could. The Romans so accommodated the Jews in their religious predilections that they would actually condone the execution of any Gentile caught inside the temple. They would sanction it and they would allow the Jews to execute them even if they were Roman citizens. So Paul's Roman citizenship doesn't buy him anything here. If Paul's guilty of this, it's a capital crime. Not only would Trophimus be executed, but Paul would be executed because he's aiding and abetting the defiling of the temple. And Roman citizenship or no, they can kill him. They have sanction from Rome to kill him. This is a capital crime, and this is what they're trying to nail him on. They're trying to find a reason to kill him. And so they charge him with a capital crime, one that they can execute him without a trial, without a jury, without Roman involvement at all, and have the Romans sanction his death and his execution. And that's why they, that's why they nail him with that accusation. Have you noticed that Trophimus wasn't arrested? This is the one, this is the one accusation that they could put proof to if they could get proof. If there were a, a Greek in the temple, they could have seized him, but they never seized Trophimus. They never seized any Greek. They never put anybody to death for this. Which tells you what about their accusation? It's false. Do you think Paul would endanger the life of a friend by bringing him into the temple? No. Do you think Paul would knowingly defile the temple? Here's the irony of it. What is he there for? To purify himself so he can participate in the ceremony without what? Defiling the temple. And they accuse him of doing the very thing that he's trying to be conciliatory toward the Jews and not do. He's trying to accommodate them and avoid defiling the temple, and so they accuse him of defiling the temple. But Paul would have never done that. So what do they do? Well, now they have now have rights to kill him. Verse 29, it says, now look how gracious Luke is. I want you to look at verse 29 and realize how gracious and how accurate Dr. Luke is in recording this. They had previously seen Trophimus, the Ephesian, in the city with him, and they supposed that Paul had brought him into the temple. What Luke is telling us is this is not an outright intentional lie on their behalf. This is an assumption that they made, and it was a wrong assumption. They had seen, maybe it was earlier in the day, maybe it was just a couple hours earlier, They had seen Paul down in the marketplace, down in the city, 
with Trophimus the Ephesian. They knew that Trophimus was a Greek and not a Jew. And the Asian Jews knew Trophimus and they knew Paul. They knew Paul was a Jew. They knew Trophimus was a Greek. And they saw them down in the city together. And then a little while longer, I don't know how long, maybe a couple hours, maybe a day later, they saw Paul in the temple and they assumed that he must have taken Trophimus with him right into the temple. Maybe they saw Trophimus and Paul walking together into the court of the Gentiles and Trophimus stayed out there and Paul went further in. Whatever it was, it was a mistake on their behalf. They made an assumption and they jumped to the accusation of of charging Paul with a capital crime. They brought him into the temple and he has defiled this holy place. Now, if that's true, Paul's going to die. If that's true, he's a dead man and Rome cannot do anything to stop it because they will sanction his death. Now you say, do they have any basis in law for those charges? How about any basis in reality? Nobody seems to stop long enough to just ask, are these true? Could they be true of this guy? Listen, these four charges, they're not designed to triumph in a court of law. That's not what they want. They don't want a court of law. You know what they want to have happen to Paul? The same thing that happened to Stephen. And listen, here's the irony. Just a little less than 25 years earlier, the Apostle Paul, who was then Saul of Tarsus, in the city of Jerusalem, charged Stephen with the exact same crimes. And here he's listening to himself be charged with what Stephen was charged with. Look at the irony of that. Paul had buried Stephen under a pile of rubble and brought against him those same charges. Listen to Acts chapter 6, verse 11. They secretly induced men to say against Stephen, we have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes and they came up to him and dragged him away and brought him before the council. They put forward false witnesses who said, this man incessantly speaks against this holy place and the law. Right? He speaks against the temple. He speaks against law. He speaks against our people. For we have heard him say that this Nazarene Jesus will destroy this place and alter the customs which Moses handed down to him. Same charges. Less than 25 years older. Uh, earlier. They're hoping to have happen to Paul the same thing that Paul oversaw happened to Stephen. They grabbed Paul, laid hands on him, and they dragged him outside of the temple. I want you to notice the violence of that, friends. Listen, the last time Paul heard those accusations leveled against a person and saw somebody get dragged after those accusations were leveled, it was Stephen. i got to wonder, was Paul thinking to himself, oh, deja vu, seen this happen, I raised these same accusations against Stephen. You know, in one of his defenses later on in the book of Acts, Paul talks about the blood of Stephen the martyr on his hands. I was responsible for that. It was part of his defense. I think Paul, in his mind, is thinking to himself, I saw this happen one time. The Spirit promised him sufferings, but the Spirit didn't say anything about death. I don't think Paul was worried about his life. And they dragged him outside the temple, and it says the doors were shut. Now, friends, I want you to keep something in mind. The Apostle Paul is 60 years old when this happens. Right about 60 years old. Now, I think he was in good shape. I think the Apostle Paul, with all of his walking and his hiking and his activity and his preaching and his constant activity, I think he was probably a a fairly fairly well-in-shape man. But he is 60. He's not that 50-year-old spring chicken that took the stoning in Lystra after then they dragged him outside the city. He's not that young. He doesn't recover from these things. Can you imagine being 60 years old? Some of you are around 60. Can you imagine them grabbing you, seizing you, and dragging you outside the temple all the way through the court of the Gentiles, all the way through the court of women from the inner sanctuary of the temple, through the court of Israel, through the court of 
women outside to the court of Gentiles. And Luke says they shut the doors of the temple. Bang. Why did they do that? There's a reason why they did that. Very practical reason why they did that. If they kill him inside the temple, it would defile the temple. We've accused him of defiling the temple. Well, that wouldn't make much sense. It would look pretty silly for us to defile the temple by killing him inside, drag him outside the court of the Gentile. So they seize him. They drag him out through those two courts into the court of the Gentiles where they could kill him and not defile the temple. And it would be the temple guard that shut the doors. And you know why the temple guard shut the doors? What happens if he's almost dead by the time they get done beating him? He runs back through the doors into the temple and dies in there. We defile the temple. So we need to shut the doors to keep the mob from dragging him back in there, to keep Paul from going back in there, to preclude any possibility that he could get back into the temple and defile the temple. Now what does that tell you about their intentions when they shut the doors? What were they intending to do? The temple police knew with the accusations that they had raised and the crowd at the fever pitch that they were at. They knew what the intention of the Jews from Asia were when they grabbed him and drug him outside the temple and they shut the doors because they know we're going to kill him. That's their intention. There's a little bit of symbolism here too, my friends, and I don't want to make too much of this, but listen. The shutting of those temple doors speaks volumes. You know why? In a very real sense, the messenger of God, the apostle of grace, the apostle of Christ, Jesus Christ himself, salvation, the message of salvation, the gospel of grace, were not welcome inside the temple. When they drug him outside and shut the doors, F.F. Bruce, I think, accurately is a, a commentator. He accurately says, from that point forward, my friends, you can just see the temple was doomed. It was took 12 years Twelve years later, and the temple was destroyed, and Jerusalem was sacked. I mean, they effectively shut their opportunity for any grace at all. The doors were shut. The grace of God was not welcomed. The apostle of God was not welcomed. The message of God was not welcomed. God was not welcomed in His own home. It was called by His name. And they shut the doors. I think this is a good place to stop for this week. The doors are shut. The mob is at a fever pitch. They have drug Him outside, and listen... Since Paul's knees hit the road, hit, hit the dirt on the Damascus road, they have had one goal in mind for him. And you know what it is? They're going to kill him. He came back to Jerusalem, Acts chapter 9, they tried to kill him. They plotted his death in Corinth before he left to come back to Jerusalem this time. And now they have had dropped into their lap a perfect opportunity. These Jews finally have an excuse. They have a mob behind them and they're in Jerusalem and there's nothing the Romans can do. He is finally within their grasp. For 20 years they have been hunting him, hounding him, and hating him. And now they have an opportunity, a justification, and his death has never been closer than it is right now. He's right there in their lap. He's right there in their grasp. And if they can just beat him to death before the Romans get there, they've got him. Never been better for them. And for Paul, even though he's been seized and he's been dragged, for the Apostle Paul, it's going to get worse before it gets better. We'll look at what happens next week. Father, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You, Father, that You are one that we can trust in Your sovereignty and Your grace even when we face suffering and things like what happened to Paul. What an example of of grace it is to us of this man who suffered for righteousness, suffered for the gospel according to the power of God. And we ask, Father, that You would encourage our hearts and strengthen us in the truth that You're sovereign, that You're providential, that You're graceful, and that you never allow us to undergo more than we can handle. 
We thank you for that truth and that reminder this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.